Thank you. The first time I've ever been called a video producer. We need to add that to, uh, to my, my very short list of achievements. <laughs> if you knew what went into those videos I produce on Mondays, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite an interesting task. Well, thank you for, for being here. Uh, look forward to visiting with you during the, the course of the day and get to know you a little bit better. Sorry about last night. You can blame the weather in DFW or American Airlines or whoever you want to blame. But <laughs> it was an interesting day. We were talking this, about this a little bit uh, last night. The original plan was for us to land at 3.30ish, something like that. And uh, we got to the airport, and they bumped our flight 20 minutes late, and we thought, okay, maybe we're still good. Well, then it was 40, and then it was finally hour and 50 minutes. And, then we were scrambling, Nick and I were on the phone trying to figure out what was going to go on. Ended up flying into DFW the same time that our connecting flight was flying away from DFW. And then we got a flight to Cincinnati and drove in last night around 8 o'clock, I guess. But uh, it all worked out along the way. We had a little adventure. We barely left Cincinnati and we're driving down the interstate and the car directly in front of us, 50 yards in front of us, just all of a sudden takes a sharp right turn off the interstate. Just like that. Went down the bar ditch, up the hill, probably 100 yards, the very ridge of the hill, and then disappears inside whatever is up there, vines and trees and whatnot. So we were just watching this, praying that he wasn't going to flip. Anyway, we pulled over really quickly. Stacy called 911. I ran up the hill to make sure everything was okay. Young kid, 19 years old, very shaken up, but okay. So I'm glad we were able to be there to give him a little bit of encouragement and, and consolation. You can imagine how shaken up he was after that, uh, that little adventure. Anyway, we're glad to be here and look forward to the course of the day. A little bit about me, if you don't know much about me, uh, as far as my background goes, I uh, was was raised in Texas, live in Texas, right outside Texas, right outside San Antonio in New Braunfels. Stacy and I have been married for several years now. Went to high school together, and as I mentioned last night, she wouldn't have anything to do with me in high school. I guess it wasn't cool enough, but 25 years later, we were back together, and uh, glad, to, glad to be able to enjoy life together. I worked full-time for 1517. If you're not familiar with them, you can check out all their stuff at 1517.org. Uh, they pay me to podcast and video produce and travel around and speak and, and write. My newest book, Unveiling Mercy, is my first book with 1517 Publishing, so super, super excited about that. And honestly, I'm just grateful for the chance to do full-time what I never thought that I'd be able to do full-time again. I was a professor in the past, and for a number of years, I drove a truck and then began to write a little bit more on the side, got some speaking opportunities open up, and the next thing I know, it's like I'm working two full-time jobs. I'm, I'm driving a truck Monday through Friday, I'm traveling a lot of weekends to speak, and then 1517 offered me this position uh, to work for them full-time, so jumped at the opportunity to be able to, to travel around and spend time with folks like you and to be able to get paid for what I love to do. Which is, a, which is a pretty cool thing. I was raised as a Southern Baptist. Anybody else? Yeah, good. A few. Um, when I was a kid, I was all into, you know, the, into the, the Baptist church life. 
we went twice on Sunday, Wednesday nights, VBS, Sunday school. And my, my biblical hero was David, because of course, why? Why would a kid's hero be David? Yeah, he killed Goliath, right? Yeah. It was a TV show. <laughs> well, I, and I even had a slingshot. It wasn't a sling like David had, but I had my slingshot. So I was, I was David in the alleys as a kid growing up. I was the one who was going to take down any, uh, any Goliath that, uh, that faced me. Of course, over time, my view of David began to change. You find out there's a whole lot more to David's story than just David and Goliath. There were many more stories that filled up David's life. And really, my gradual learning more about David corresponded with me learning more about myself as well through the pitfalls of life, through the horrible, destructive mistakes that we make. And so I began to view David's life very differently than I did when I was a kid growing up in the Baptist church. I began to see that David was actually a, a flawed sinner, just like myself, just like all of us, who fought his own demons, who had all his skeletons in the closet. And this corresponded also with what we're going to talk about this weekend, today, my view of really what the Old Testament is all about. Because like a lot of people, I grew up with the Old Testament being portrayed as basically a reservoir of examples that we are either to emulate or to avoid emulating. So you got your good examples and you got your bad examples. And so basically you want to be like the good and you want to avoid being like the bad. It was pretty much the approach to the Old Testament that I was exposed to both as a, as a child and then even later when I got into to, to college. What I began to realize over time is that that's not what the Old Testament is about at all. We'll get into that more as we, as we go along. But that's going to be one of the main focuses that I want us to, to really center on as we cover this material. What, as, we, as we enter into the Old Testament, what are we expecting to find? What are we looking for? Because as so often happens, the questions that we ask when we're entering into the scriptures, are going to lead us toward the answers. The wrong questions usually lead you to the wrong answer. The right questions usually lead you toward the right answer. I want to back up a little bit and talk just simply about the Old Testament itself. So I'm still an old school guy. I still carry the book. I know I still I use my Bible on my phone as well, but I, I, I do still carry the book. This has been my Bible since uh, back in my university days. But one of the things that we need to stop and, and reflect on is that for me to be able to hold something like this or for you to open up your, your Bible app and scroll to whatever you're looking for is something that would simply be impossible, would be unheard of for most of church history, and certainly before that, when you get into the days of the Old Testament. So when you put yourself into the shoes of a first century Jew, which of course is exactly what the followers of Christ were, the earliest followers of Christ were, all of them were, were Jews. So for you, in that particular situation, what do you think of when you think of the scriptures? 
Okay, you're, first of all, you're not, thinking, you're not thinking of a book, right? This particular, the, the codex form of the book was not in the first century. That was actually probably more of a Christian invention in second, third centuries. Whoops, I'm losing my music stand here. There we go. Um, so you had scrolls to begin with, right? So if you have scrolls, what do you know immediately? It's limited in space, right? There's only so much you can put on a scroll. So chances are you've got maybe one book of the Bible per scroll. What else do you think of when you think of the scriptures in the first century Jewish context? Hebrew. Yeah, it's in Hebrew, right? It's in Hebrew, although a lot of first century Jews, uh, because they were living in a Greek world, many of them would, would also be bilingual. So. Or if you're living kind of outside the Holy Land, if you're living in the diaspora, then chances are Greek was actually, even as a Jew, Greek was your, was your native language. So you use what was called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So chances are most Jews knew Hebrew or some Hebrew, but also chances are they knew, they knew some Greek as well. So for you, what, 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 are the script, what do the scriptures consist of? Yeah, okay, what we call the Old Testament. What they would sometimes call the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the Torah, which is the first five books, and the Nevi'im, which are the, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the, the writings. So for them, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, that was the scriptures. Now, this is significant for us to think about because if you're in the first century, you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, you're reflecting upon the scriptures, everything that you know about who Jesus is is based upon everything from Genesis to the last of the prophets. So if you're talking about what it means for Jesus to be the one who achieves atonement for us, you don't go to Romans. You don't go to Galatians. Where do you go to? Okay, you go to the prophets, yeah. Or where else? Isaiah. You go to Isaiah? Yeah, you're looking at Isaiah 53. Maybe you're going to everybody's favorite book, Leviticus. Yeah. yeah. Or you want to talk about righteousness, okay? How are we righteous in Jesus? Well, again, you're not going to Paul's epistle to the Romans or maybe 2 Corinthians. You're going to... Yeah, you're going to Pentateuch. Yeah. Maybe you're going to Genesis 15. The whole story of Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So my point is, you're, you're, a, you're an early follower of Jesus. What you have are what they called the scriptures. And for them, the scriptures consisted exclusively of what we call the Old Testament. So when you're approaching the Old Testament from their perspective, you are approaching the source from which we get everything that we know about who our Lord is. Now, this is not the way, I don't have, I don't have to tell you this, but I'll, but, I'll, but I'll say it to say it. This is not the way that most Christians approach the scriptures today. So if you want to talk about Jesus to someone, you take him to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You want to talk to them about what faith is, what salvation is, what righteousness is, whatever it might be, you're going to take him to Galatians. You're going to take him to Romans. You're going to walk him through the New Testament writings. But if you're an early follower of Jesus, that's not what you're going to do because these things don't exist yet. 
The scriptures are the Old Testament. And then, if you read in the New Testament where the scriptures are referred to, it's not self-referential. When the, when the New Testament talks about the scriptures, it's not talking about the New Testament. It's talking about what we call the Old Testament. So we've got to think for a little bit about what the Old Testament is in order to know how we are to approach it. One of the things that, that I like to always stress is that we could, in a sense, say that the scriptures are really only five books. That's the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That really is, in essence, the Bible. Not just for us, but for the, for the Jews as well. Because they, they considered Moses, the writings of Moses, to be the foundation upon which everything else was built. In fact, the Jews would say that everything that the prophets explicated, everything that the Psalms were singing about, Everything that, that Proverbs and the wisdom literature were making evident, all of this was either explicitly or implicitly said by Moses. So they like to say, for instance, that everything that the prophets were to say was already given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And what, what happened is everything from Joshua onward was nothing more than them digging into the writings of Moses and making explicit what was already implicit there. So the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, are the foundation upon which everything else rests. That, is going, that, that guides my approach to the scriptures. It's going to guide our approach this morning. We're, we're going to go back to the Torah again and again and again because these are the foundational stories that are replicated, that are expanded, that are made more explicit as time, as time goes on. So cr especially creation and the exodus, and the building of the tabernacle, all of which is, was, is within the Torah. This becomes not only the foundation of the rest of the scriptures, but it also becomes the foundation of our teachings about who Christ is. And, not, and you don't find this just in the Old Testament, you also find this in the New Testament as well. So I like to say that everything post-Deuteronomy is inspired interpretation. So once you get past Deuteronomy, in a sense, you're, you're leaving behind the scriptures, you're leaving behind the Bible, as it were, and everything else after that is spirit-inspired interpretation, application, and explication. Now, I don't want anybody trying to burn me as a heretic, so let me make sure that I'm... I'm <laughs> yes, everything from Genesis to Revelation is the Bible, is the scriptures. But my point is that what you're seeing after Deuteronomy ends after you have this foundation laid, is drawing from what went before it. Now this becomes, just for me anyway, uh, an amazing journey because what you, what you begin to see as you're reading through, through, uh, through Joshua about all the battles and conquest, or you know, if you enter into that real crazy dark world of the book of Judges, or when you're entering into the beautiful eloquence of Isaiah, or you're, you're looking at the Psalms, what you, what you begin to see is what I like to call the, the layering of the scriptures. So you have your foundation, and then you have Joshua layered upon that. And then you have judges layered upon that. And on and on we go with layer upon layer. So what you can do is you can kind of be a biblical archaeologist. 
You begin to, you start at kind of the surface. Maybe your surface is the book of Psalms. Maybe your surface is the book of Romans. Maybe your surface is all the way to Revelation, whatever it is. And you, you begin to, to scratch the surface. And you discover there's, there's something there. And so you dig a little bit deeper and you look, dig a little bit deeper. And what you see is that once you pass Deuteronomy, you have these layers that are interpretive layers. Where, for instance, when the Israelites in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, what happens? They build boats to get across the Jordan? No. It parts, yeah. Why would it part? Because it's... What's it? It's a fulfillment of the promise. And it's a duplication of what happened, at, of course, at the Red Sea, right? So this is, this, is, this, so this is like Exodus number two, if you will. It's the crossing of the sea, part two. Why? Because God just kind of wants to impress his people? No, because he wants him to realize that, hey, what I did at the Red Sea to affirm that I am with you, I'm going de- to destroy your enemies, and I've given you Moses as your leader. Now, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to part the Jordan, you're going to cross over, and I'm going to show you that I'm with you, I'm going to defeat your enemies, and I've given you a new leader, and his name is Joshua. So this is, I mean, that's just one example of how you have this this ongoing interpretation and this ongoing amplification of what went went before it. So anyway, uh, that's... That's the way that we're going to do a lot of our work today. When we start looking at specific passages, we're going to say, okay, how, how is this connected to something that went before it? And then how maybe is that connected with something which went before that? Okay. So, with that said, let's talk just for a second before we actually get into some of this material. Let's talk about kind of what you might call basic approaches to the scriptures three or four basic approaches to to the Old Testament in particular. I've already alluded to one of these. It's the way that I was raised. And I'm guessing it's the way a lot of you were raised as well. So you look at the story of David and Goliath. Or you look at the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Or you look at any number of stories, Cain and Abel. And you basically have what I like to call an an Aesop's fable approach to to the scriptures. Or if you want a different metaphor, it's a gold gem approach to, to the scriptures. Yeah. So uh, you, you go to golds, or you know, if you're like me and you have, you know, you want to spend less money, you go to Planet Fitness. <laughs> and uh, you're, uh, you're there, of course, to, uh, to work out. You want to improve the way you look, you want to improve your health, you want to, it's all about becoming better, right? It's all about you know, lifting or hitting the treadmill and then, you know, make sure you do it in front of a mirror or take a selfie, somebody see you. But it's all about basically physical self-improvement, right? Which is fine. But when you, when, you, when you treat that as kind of the metaphorical way in which you approach the Old Testament, what do you end up with? Well, you end up by looking at these stories as if they're examples of ways in which you can spiritually self-improve yourself. In other words, you're going to look at this narrative and you'll be like, okay, what can, I, what can I learn from this particular story that's going to help me be a better person? 
Well, if you're looking at the story of David and Goliath, for instance, maybe you're going you're gonna to say, well, you know, I've got some giants in my life, right? That's the, the, the typical way of, of doing this, you know, so what, what giant am I going to overcome, you know? Is it my addiction? Is it my bad relationship? Is it whatever my particular vice might be? I mean, how, how can I learn from David's story how to take down this giant with God's help? You always kind of like add that in as a footnote, right? With God's help. Or you look at the story of uh, Jacob and Esau, you know? Which one is the bad guy and which one is the good guy? You know, that's the, the typical question we ask. Well, you know, if you take kind of this moralistic approach, who's the bad guy? <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> Most people would say Esau, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Esau, bad guy. I mean, look, the guy sold his birthright for a, a, a bowl of soup. What, what a bad guy. Don't be like him. Be like Jacob. But of course, when you actually begin to be honest with yourself about the story, what do you realize? Yeah, Jacob is a total jerk, right? At least that's my... And I think Esau actually comes out as a pretty, pretty, pretty nice guy. I mean, he has his issues. I'm not saying he doesn't have his issues. But Jacob, yeah, Jacob is, a, is a, literally a heel. That's what his name means, Yaakov, heel. So he's a heel of a guy. Uh, so when you, when you begin to actually be honest with yourself about these characters, you realize that very, very few Old Testament characters and what we're told about them come out looking like pretty decent people. Now, there are a few exceptions. There are some guys, like Boaz, for instance, the sort of Ruth. He seemed like he's a pretty cool guy, you know? And there's a, there's a handful of others, but most of them, once you really kind of get to know who they are, you realize that you, you, you can't hold up these people as moral examples because... You know, if you, if you want to emulate, for instance, Noah, well, then plan on getting drunk and falling asleep naked in your tent and letting your child find you. It's probably not a good way to, not a way, good way to be a parent. Uh, or you know, David, I'll tell you about what David did. But almost all of these people end up not being a great example for you to follow. And, of course, it misses the entire point. The entire point of these stories is not to hold up individuals for you to emulate. The point of the story is something radically different, which we will be getting into. But let me talk about a second approach. And I think this is still relatively common, and it's what I call the museum approach to the Old Testament. The museum approach to the Old Testament, you basically, you, you treat it as if it's a fascinating collection of old stories. It's kind of cool to check out on occasion. But when you leave a museum, most of us are not radically changed by that visit, right? We learned a few things. We kind of delved into the, into the past. It's pretty cool that this or that happened. But you know, I, I've never talked to someone who left a museum and they felt like they were a new person. They just felt like they learned a little bit, right? And I think that is the way, at least in my experience, that's the way that the, the Old Testament is treated in some churches. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting to check out, but it's not life-changing. So those, I think, are probably the, the two main approaches. Now, in my own tradition, I'm, I'm a Lutheran. It seems like what I encounter more often than not, and I don't know if this has been your experience, but it's what I call the oasis approach, to where the Old Testament is treated as basically pretty much a vast, arid wasteland, except for a few oases here and there. And these are usually like a prophecy of the Messiah. So you start out, you know, creation is interesting, and then you have an oasis in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed. 
And then you got to go a long way before you come to the next oasis. And then you got to travel all the way through dry Leviticus and dry Numbers. And Well, there's maybe one in Numbers and Deuteronomy. But basically, when you begin to walk your way through the Scriptures, what you're finding is, is pretty much a bunch of, yeah, somewhat interesting material, somewhat interesting facts, but not really anything that's going to quench your thirst, except a few places here and there. So what happens, at least in my tradition, is that a few of like the big passages, the Isaiah 53s and the Psalm 22s and passages like that, are the ones that people gravitate toward, but there's a whole vast array of stories that really never get looked at because, because they're understood not really to have any connection to Christ. Okay? Now, the approach that I take with regard to the Old Testament is, I think, has some pretty sure footing because it happens to be the approach that Jesus himself took toward the Old Testament. So, you look at, well, look at the story of the Emmaus disciples, right? You remember this? It's the day our Lord rose from the dead. The two Emmaus disciples are, are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The stranger joins them. And remember the initial conversation that they have? What does he ask them? Why are you so sad? Yeah. What's going on? You know, what, what happened? And one of them says, are you the only one that doesn't, doesn't know what happened? And then he briefly describes to Jesus what happened to Jesus. <laughs> well, there was, you know, this guy, and we thought that he was it, and it turns out he wasn't because the Romans killed him. So we're pretty disappointed. And so Jesus walks along with them. And then you have this amazing lecture that he gives them where he begins to open their minds to understand the scriptures. To understand that the scriptures are all about him. He begins with Moses, and then he goes to the prophets and everything else. So you can imagine what was happening inside the minds and the hearts of these disciples. In fact, they, they talked about how there, there was like a fire burning within them as Jesus opened the scriptures up to them. Now, I guarantee you that Jesus, as he was walking along with them, was not teaching them morality tales. What he was teaching them was how everything in one way or another is connected to him. Or you go to the Gospel of John, right? Chapter 5, where Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think that, they, that you have eternal life. And what? It is these that testify of me. Interesting little background to this in the Hebrew. Jesus says, you search the scriptures. Well, in Hebrew, to search is darash. And from that verb darash, we get a word called midrash. Midrash is the Jewish interpretive approach to the Old Testament, in which they're mainly looking at narratives and drawing out kind of moralistic tales based upon that. So midrash is one of the very common Jewish interpretive approaches. So basically Jesus is saying, you do midrash on the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have everlasting life. Well, you're doing your midrash all wrong because you're not coming to the conclusion that these scriptures are all about me. So that's kind of what's going on behind the scenes when, when Jesus says this. And of course, it's not just from Jesus. We have Peter in three different places saying that 
not just the prophets and not just some of the prophets and not just most of the prophets, but all the prophets testified of these days, these days of the Messiah. So as I like to urge people, when you're reading through the Old Testament, either literally or at least in your mind, right at the top of every single page, how in these words is Christ speaking of himself to the church? And it doesn't matter which one it is. If you're reading through the creation account, if you're reading about Cain and Abel, if you're reading about Jacob and Esau, if you're reading through the sacrificial liturgy of Leviticus, if you're reading through the genealogies, if you're reading through the life of David, the Psalms, it really doesn't matter. The question that you need to ask yourself is, how is this about Jesus? How is Christ using this particular story, either directly or indirectly, to point toward himself? Because just like the New Testament, the Old Testament is leading us toward this fulfillment. It's leading at all these promises, all of these stories, all of these genealogies, all these sacrifices, everything in one way or another is leading us toward God's ultimate fulfillment of his promise to us. So in one way or another, Christ fulfills creation. Christ fulfills the Exodus. Christ fulfills the tabernacle. Christ fulfills all of these often ugly and dark stories. In one way or another, they're all feeding into who he is. He becomes the center of the scriptures around which everything else rotates. Let me pause there for a second and see if you have any comments or, or questions about what we've covered so far. Observations. Criticisms. Anything. You tell me. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening, uh, we have uh, Heidi, right? Yep. Yeah. Heidi was saying that, that those approaches are exactly what she herself has experienced. And with me, I guess it was when it began to dawn on me, I was a seminary student. And I had, I had taken Hebrew in college. And then when I was at seminary, I took several Old Testament classes. And my professor at the time was really great about opening up the scriptures to where you saw Christ in them. And these lights began to go off, and I began to realize, oh my gosh, you know, this, this, this whole collection of stories that I had treated as, you know, more or less morality tales, they're not about me. They're not about what I need to do. Instead, they're about who Christ is and what Christ has done for me. And when that happened, I began to see how the gospel just flooded the entire Old Testament. So that was actually... I didn't, I didn't honestly care that much for Hebrew before then. <laughs> but when I fell in love with the Old Testament, I began to really spend some more time with Hebrew, and I saw I fell in love with Hebrew as a, as a result of that. But anyway, in my experience, it was, it was in college. And then uh, after that, I was just hook, line, and sinker. I was, I was all in with regard to Christ in the Old Testament. Anybody else? Yes, sir. So what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, is there, is there an aspect to these stories where we can see kind of maybe immorality at play, right? We can look at them and, and maybe learn something for them, from them with regard to, to good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. These stories are basically an example of what sin has done to humanity. Stories like that. That's the way that I like to view them. I mean, if you're reading the story of Cain and Abel, which I think, is, I think Cain and Abel is the foundational human story. I don't think it's Adam and Eve. 
Adam and Eve were, were the first two humans, but they really weren't the first two humans because they didn't even have a birthday, right? They're very different from us. Cain and Abel are exactly like we are. So I think the Cain and Abel is the foundational human story. So you're reading through that, for instance. What do you, what do you learn about that? Well, you learn this is anthropology. This is human nature. This is the way that people are. Therefore, this is the way that I am. This is the way that my neighbors are. So it, it, it's a, stories like that, and of course, the Old Testament is full of these. Stories like that are indicative of our inability to be the way that we were created to be. That we're going to fail in ways that are huge, like Cain did, or maybe in ways that are small. But either way, it's revelatory of our inability to live up to God's law. So all the shoulds, all the must that God places before us, all the thou shalts and shalt nots, we see just how much human nature cannot and will not live up to that, exemplified in all of these stories. So in that way, they become a mirror of our own life. So when we read through these, it's basically story after story of our need of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, we, we're all going to be like Cain, we're all going to be like Abraham, we're all going to be like whoever it might be, in one way or another. So in that way, they preach the law to us, and that they, were, that they show, hey, this is, this is where you are apart from God. This is who you are apart from Christ. So they reveal the fact that there's this huge emptiness within us that only can be filled by, by God. Yeah. Thank you, Celeste. Yeah. Celeste was saying how you can see, especially like in a book like Jonah, how, how God's faithfulness is, is long-suffering, right? His patience with us just goes on and on and on. Jonah is a great example of that because God is like this super patient father because when Jonah is acting like a little four-year-old throwing a temper tantrum, God just basically approaches him and he's like, are you okay? I mean, is, is, it, is it good for you to be angry? And Jonah's just like, yes, it's good for me to be angry. Yeah. So, so angry, I would just rather die then live one more minute to watch you show compassion to these Assyrians. <laughs> and then Jonah's, Jonah book, Jonah's my favorite ending to any biblical book. Yeah. And also many cows. That's, that's the way it is. Should I not be concerned about all these people? And the cows. There's a lot of cows I need to be concerned about as well. I think Jonah is nothing more than one huge comedy. It's really, as far as like a genre goes, Jonah's just a comedy. You've got to laugh at Jonah. He's just hilarious. You can just imagine. He's not a guy you can have a beer with. He's just like, Jonah's not one of those people. He's just one of those people you have to laugh at. It's the only way you can deal with him. Okay, uh, I'm going to give you one quick example of how when you're approaching the Old Testament with the question, how is this about Christ, it can lead you in places that you might not have expected. And then we're going to transition into our second subject. So, um, you open up the Old Testament, you turn to Genesis, you turn to Genesis chapter 1, you turn to Genesis 1-1, you look at the very first word, which in Hebrew is barashit, three words in English, one word in Hebrew, the ba is in, and the reshit is beginning. Okay, so when you hear in the beginning, you hear barashit, what do you think? Okay, in the beginning, right? Right, real simple. Right. Well, that, we, Chad, we were really not. What are you asking for here? <laughs> it means like when things got started, right? 
Well, that's true. I mean, th that is when things got started. It is what we might call a temporal beginning, right? It had to begin sometime. This is when it began. Well, th no argument there. But dig a little bit deeper. Actually, there, it turns out that there's, there's a little bit more going on there, okay? So, and this is, this is by no means original with me. This is Jewish literature. This is early Christian literature that saw this as well. So let's break that down. So ba reshit. So the ba is the preposition in, but the reshit. So what, what is that? Well, if you turn to Proverbs chapter 8, and you, in, you look at uh, the entirety of the chapter, and it turns out that Proverbs 8 is a, a soliloquy of wisdom, the speech of wisdom, where wisdom is talking. Well, who is wisdom? Well, wisdom in this particular part of, of Proverbs and in other parts of the Old Testament, wisdom is personified. So w this isn't just like what we, we usually think of wisdom in the abstract, like she is wise, he is wise, he has wisdom. It's different here. This is, this, is, this is a personification of wisdom, which in Hebrew is chokmah. In Greek, sophia. So wis and wisdom is personified as a female because chokmah in Hebrew is a feminine noun. So feminine noun, she's portrayed as kind of lady wisdom. And this is, so this is wisdom personified engaged in this soliloquy, in this speech, right? Well, she, well what's she saying? Well, she's saying a whole lot of stuff. She starts out by saying, you know, she's calling to people, come, receive of my, receive of my wisdom. Goes on to talk about how by me, kings reign, rulers decree justice. Okay. Now look at verse 22, because now we have a shift. This is still wisdom speaking. Proverbs 8, verse 22 says, the Lord possessed me. That particular verb could be translated also as begot me. So the Lord possessed me, he begot me. At the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And then wisdom goes on to talk about all these aspects of creation, right? When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. So on and so forth. Drop down to verse 30. I was beside him, that is wisdom saying I was beside God. As a master worksman, as a master workman, could be translated as like a, like a divine architect, something like that. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now you go back to verse 22. The Lord begot me or possessed me. Now literally in the Hebrew it reads this way. Yahweh, the Lord, begot me or possessed me. Not at, there's no at in the original. The Lord possessed me or begotten me. The beginning of his way. That word for beginning is reshit. The same word that we have in Genesis 1 verse 1. So the Lord possessed me, wisdom speaking, the Lord possessed me wisdom or begot me wisdom. The beginning, the reshit of his way. What the early rabbis like to do is they would put Proverbs 8 side by side with Genesis 1.1. And they would paraphrase it this way. In the beginning, that is, in wisdom, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. 
So they see the race sheet of Genesis 1-1 connected with the race sheet of Proverbs 8-22. So that they understood this beginning of Genesis 1-1 not as just simply how everything got started as a temporal beginning, but as a personification. So capital B beginning. In the beginning, that is to say, in wisdom. Which wisdom? The wisdom which with which the wisdom which was with God at the very beginning, the wisdom who was beside him as a master workman, the wisdom who was right there at the right hand of Yahweh at the beginning. Okay? Now, you keep all of that in mind, you go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, Christ is referred to as the wisdom of God. He is our sanctification, he's our justification, he is our wisdom from God. You go to the beginning of John's gospel. How does John start his gospel? John 1.1. In the beginning, right? In RK. RK, in RK is, is the Greek beginning of John 1.1. That is the exact same beginning as Genesis 1.1 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So John, by beginning the way he does, John is wanting to say to you, hey, I'm, I'm about to talk about Jesus, but the only way that I can really talk about him is in a Genesis 1 sort of way. So John wants you to be reading his gospel with one eye on Genesis 1-1, and he uses that word RK in the beginning at his, in his gospel as a way of pointing you to Jesus. Then you get to Revelation, and you hear what Jesus says. This is uh, his message to Laodicea. This is Revelation 3 Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, the arche, of the creation of God. He says this. So Jesus himself in Proverbs and in Revelation 3 refers to himself as the arche, as the beginning. And the arche is the Greek equivalent of reshit in Hebrew. So, pulling all this together, we would say that in the beginning, that is to say in wisdom, that is to say in the Word of God, in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. So, you don't get any farther than the first word of the Scriptures before all of this together, this, this, this vast web of connections points us to the fact that this is not simply how everything began in a temporal sort of way, but this beginning is actually Christ himself. He is the one by whom God the Father made the heavens and the earth. And this is by far not just a Jewish idea about this beginning, but we also see this reflected in the, in the writings of the church fathers too, that he is, he is understood to be the, the capital B beginning by which God made everything that exists. So those are the kind of things that I find fascinating because you can see that there is this this, this immense web of connections from Genesis to Revelation where you see how the same word can be traced all the way through this so that it eventually ends up pointing to, to Christ himself. Okay. Any questions at this point? How are we doing on time? We've got a few minutes left. We're going to go till 10, right? So I want to, if nobody has any, anything, I'm going to jump into our next, next section. And in this one, we're going to be talking about uh, what are usually referred to as Christophanies. 
So a theophany is what? Appearance of God. Theophany is when God somehow makes some, usually in a grand sort of way, right? So you think of Mount Sinai, smoke, fire, everything trembling, that's a theophany. Anybody experience one of those? No, no, me either. Christophany, of course, is going to be then appearance of, of Christ, right? So what would, a, what would a Christophany look like? Well, for my money, a Christophany looks like a theophany, and a theophany looks like a Christophany, <laughs> because I'm of the opinion that anytime you have God appearing, it's Christ appearing. He's the one by whom we know who God is, and so when you have a theophany, you have a, a Christophany. Well, what would these look like? Well, this is where I want to go in this particular section. I want to talk about how in the Old Testament you have multiple ways in which God makes himself visible to his people. Sometimes in a very grand sort of way, like at Mount Sinai, and sometimes not in a really grand sort of way, but in a very visible, tangible sort of way. These are the ways in which God is somehow in various kinds of forms, making himself visible to people in the Old Testament. And what did this look like? Well, sometimes it looked like Sinai. Sometimes it looked like the burning bush. Sometimes it looked like a man. Very often, in fact, it looked like just some regular guy. And when you, when you first had this encounter, the people are, they think they're really talking to, to Nick, you know, or they're, or they're talking to, to Joe or whatever. I mean, they're like, you know, who are you, and what are you talking about? Like, they'll even, Gideon, for instance, begins an argument with this particular appearance of God to him, because he doesn't know who it is, right? So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of times it just looked like another Israelite, this person who shows up, until all of a sudden something crazy happens, and they, like, disappear inside the, the fire of the sacrifice, and they realize, oh, it was the angel of the Lord, or it was whatever, whatever it might have been. So it... In other words, sometimes when this happens, it's not like the, the first thing a person thinks is not, oh my God, I'm, just, I'm experiencing a theophany. First time it happens, they might think, who are you? Yeah, what's, what's going on here? So we're going to look at some examples of those. In particular, we're going to look at what are referred to as the angel of the Lord traditions, which is a misnomer because it's not an angel, but that's usually what they're referred to, the angel of the Lord traditions. And then we're also going to look at several others that are like this, that fall kind of in the same sphere, where, for instance, getting back to our Proverbs discussion, it's wisdom sometimes. Other times it's referred to as the word. Sometimes it's referred to in, in, in other sorts of ways, like glory or power or name or things along those lines. And the main point that I want to make in this, and I think this is, maybe it's not new to you, but I think it's new to most Christians when they first hear this, when they think the New Testament, they think, yeah, of course, that's when Jesus came. When they think about the Old Testament, they think that's before Jesus came. That's before, you know, maybe there were promises, prophecies, things like that. But I think for most Christians, when they think Old Testament, they don't think, oh, yeah, that's the collection of books where Jesus, the Son of God, appears in lots of different ways. Because I think for most people, they think until you get to Matthew, Jesus is kind of, I don't know, he's just kind of biding his time. You know, he's going, waiting in heaven. I, 
I wish Matthew would hurry up and get her, you know. Bring on the first century so I can get to work. You know, I'm ready to, I'm ready to be Emmanuel with my people. And God the Father's like, no, wait, wait, wait until, wait until your time comes. No, I would argue that from the moment of creation, especially when you get to Genesis 2, you have the Son of God intimately involved in the lives of, of his people. If, if he is the one, as he himself says, if he is the one who is the one who makes the Father known, like he says to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So you want to see God? Look at Christ. That's Christ. That, that's God. The only, the only God that we, that we know is the one that we know in Jesus Christ. But it's like that in the New Testament. It's like that in the Old Testament as well. He is the one that reveals who God is to us. And so I would say that anytime you have a revelation, a theophany, what you're experiencing in, in some form or fashion is also a Christophany. This is Christ revealing himself. So I want to begin with probably what is the most dominant form of these, uh, these appearances, and that is the, the angel of the Lord traditions. Now, kind of behind this, this whole question, is a bigger question, I guess you could say. So God is what we sometimes call transcendent. When we say God is transcendent, what do we mean? Not like us. Not like us. Out of time. Somebody else said something. Above all. Above all, yeah. Kind of think of transcendent like he's, he's sort of wholly other, right? He's, he's, he's way out there. He's not, he's not like we are. So that's the transcendence of God. And I think, by and large, that's kind of where you're just not even a Christian, just kind of your typical person is, right? They, they might not know the word transcendent, but when they think of God, they think of God as sort of a, maybe a power or a force that's just kind of out there, right? Not really involved in creation, but he's just wholly other. The opposite of transcendent is imminent. So they have the transcendence of God and you have the imminence of God. And that's the exact opposite. So the imminence of God is his closeness to us. To where he's not wholly other, but he's wholly present. He's involved intricately in the lives and the dealings of his people. So one of the age-old, I guess you could say, tensions is how do, you, how do you bridge the gap between the transcendence of God, his holy otherness, and the imminence of God, his being wholly present? How do we pull these two, how do we pull these two together? Because God really is both, but how can he be both? How can he be wholly other and also wholly with us? And what you see in the Old Testament through these examples that we're going to look at is how God does bridge that gap. How he remains, like Isaiah says, like the angels say in Isaiah, holy, 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 right? He is, he is unlike us in every respect. And yet at the same time, he is near to us. He's imminently present. What these stories are going to do is show how God is pulling these two together, is bridging that gap by coming to us in a person a messenger that is obviously connected with him and yet somehow also distinguished from God at the same time, okay? 
Let's start with the most well-known of these, Genesis, I mean Exodus, Exodus chapter, chapter 3. We'll kind of go back and forth with, uh, with a few of these. This isn't the first time, but this is the most well-known of these. So if you look at Exodus 3, back in my, uh, my Baptist days, I would say, okay, everybody pull out your Bibles. Turn to everybody. Did you bring your Bible to church, Elizabeth Hebrew Baptist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just show up to church without a Bible. In my tradition, like, nobody brings their Bible to church. <laughs> what if they do, they bring it to their... It's, it's nice now because you've, you've always got it with you. It's your phone, right? You, uh, you never leave home without it. Okay, so uh, open up to Exodus chapter 3. And let's take a look at uh, one of the most well-known stories that we have in the whole Old Testament. So this is later in Moses' life. He's about uh, 80 years old now. Should be, you know, well into kind of retirement. Turns out, surprise to Moses, he's really about to begin his, his career, which I hope and pray God does not do to me. <laughs> my dad turns 80 next year, and I hope when I'm my dad's age next year, I will be like very comfortable in my retirement. So if I see a burning bush when I turn 80, I'm going the other direction. Because I know what happens when you see a burning bush. You know, Bethany, to, to deal with some very recalcitrant people for the next 40 years of your life. So Moses is a shepherd. He's pastoring the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He leads the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he comes to Horeb. That's another name for Sinai. Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. And we've got to pause here because we've got to figure out how to translate this next phrase. You're, all of your translations probably have the angel of the Lord, right? Anybody have anything different? Okay. So here's my quibble with, uh, with translations. I have two main quibbles with English translations with regard to the Old Testament. First one is, they, do they consistently translate Torah as law. The thing is, Torah doesn't mean law. Torah means teaching. So you can kind of do this. I, I encourage people to do an instant retranslation in your mind. When you're reading through the Old Testament, you come across the word law, just say to yourself, Torah or teaching. Because I would guess in 99.9% of the instances where where you're reading your Old Testament translations, law, the, the, that which is behind it is Torah. The Torah does not mean law. Torah can mean law. It can also mean promise. It just means the teaching of God. Right? I think that's helpful because so many times when we're reading the Old Testament and we think law, 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 law. No, a lot of it is just simply the teaching of God, of God his communication to you. That's the first issue. The second is what we're looking at here. The angel word is malach in Hebrew. Malach does not mean angel. Malach means messenger. And it happens to be the same in Greek. Angelos, which is usually translated as angel, means a messenger. So malach means messenger. The problem I have is as soon as our English minds see the word angel, we automatically assume that what we're dealing with here is a creature. One who is created by God. And we have all sorts of Weird angel images that come into our minds. Everything from tiny, cute little cherubs 
to maybe, you know, uh, a feminine angel with long flowing blonde hair to maybe a more like medieval image of an angel, you know, who's stabbing a dragon or whatever it is. But angel images come into our heads when we see this particular word. It should be translated messenger. So the, the angel of the Lord is the messenger of Yahweh. So he appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must now turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from where? In the midst of the bush. And said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, don't come near, remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And then he identifies who he is. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. We're going to look at some more instances like this. But the, the, the main point that I want to make here with regard to this is that you kind of see what's going on and then you kind of don't see what's going on. Because you kind of want to ask some questions like, who's in the bush? Because we seem to be told different things. First of all, we're told the angel, the Moloch, the messenger, is in the bush. Who is called the messenger of Yahweh. So there's evidently a distinction here, right? Because if he's the messenger of Yahweh, then he's distinguished from Yahweh. And then a little bit farther down, verse four, Yahweh, the Lord, saw he turned aside. And then Elohim, God called to him from the midst of the same bush that we're told the messenger is inside. And then he identifies himself in verse six as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So you're wondering who's who, right? And I think actually you're meant to wonder who's who. You're meant to understand that there's a complexity here. There's the messenger of the Lord, and yet the Lord seems to be speaking in the messenger. And the messenger himself is called Elohim, God, but God is Yahweh. So it, it's a little confusing until you begin to kind of fit this within what we think of as the Trinity. Where you have one God in three persons, there's a complexity to our monotheism. There's not, it's not a kind of a, a simple monotheism, one God, but there's a complexity to it. There's this differentiation within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in Trinitarian language, we, were, we would talk about how the Father sends his messenger, his Son, and yet the Son is at the same time God. Two persons, same, same essence. I went over a little bit. We're going to stop here, take a break. We're going to come back to this. Uh, and then we're going to look at some more instances of it as well. So if you have some comments or questions, save those for a few more minutes.